Hello and welcome to the first episode of Who Belongs. Who Belongs is a new podcast from the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at UC Berkeley where we examine structures that perpetuate inequity and look at issues related to social inclusion and exclusion through a framework we call othering and belonging. My name is Mark Abizaid and I'll be one of the hosts of Who Belongs. In this first episode, we're going to hear from Gordon Whitman, who is the Deputy Director of Faith and Action, formerly known as PICO, which is a national network of faith-based organizations working to build civic leaders and uplift communities through work on a broad set of issues. Gordon recently published a book on organizing called Stand Up, How to Get Involved, Speak Out, and Win in a World on Fire. The book, which is available in both English and Spanish, draws from his 25 years of experience as a community organizer in different parts of the country, as well as from a year abroad in Chile during the Pinochet dictatorship, where Gordon says he learned the most important things about organizing. Our conversation follows. So you've written this very succinct and practical book, which is meant to motivate people to become more engaged, to become effective organizers, and not to get themselves down over the negative trends that we've witnessed in the country over the last several decades with the corporate takeover of federal and state governments, the weakening of public institutions that are supposed to serve the public interest, the lower salaries for workers, and the, the widening gap between the pay of a worker and a CEO, and the damage to our environment, of course. And you do this by offering a step-by-step guide that identifies five sort of elements or conversations that the reader needs to address to become a more effective organizer. And we'll get into detail uh, into all of those. But before we get into each one of those five conversations, can we just sort of lay out the broader purpose of the book? Yeah, thanks. There's no way, and you just went through um, a long litany of of what we're facing. There's, There's no way to sugarcoat the challenges, uh, climate change or um, migration driven by climate change, um, racism and accelerating inequality. We're facing, we're in a big pickle and and there's no question that, um, you know, that those cycles are reinforcing each other and it's a huge challenge. So the question isn't, you know, telling ourselves it's not so bad, but what really leads people to say, I will do something about it and um, really dig deep and 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 make a big commitment to be involved in in a solution and and that's where the the telling people what's wrong only takes us so far. It's it's really hard to motivate people to make change just by saying you know this is wrong, this is wrong. And in some ways, we end up reinforcing the sense that we can't really make change. So I really wrote the book for grassroots community leaders, for community organizers, and for really anybody who's frustrated by what they see happening in the world and not sure what can be done about it. And you know, I think that, that works at a couple levels. One is that people can know something's wrong. Um, John Powell um, from Haas says often that, I, I've heard him say that you know, 90% of Americans um, believe there's too much money in our political system. The, the problem is most people don't think you can do anything about it. So. One is just we are so conditioned in this society to be told that you can't fight City Hall, you're on your own. It's a white, male, Western um, view of the world that says that we're basically on our own, independent, solve your own problems. 
And one of our greatest challenges right now, given what we're facing, is that we only can get out of this mess we're in by working together. And we've got to create a culture and a political culture that, that really teaches that collective action. And even if you believe something could be done about it, you still might worry about, wonder, what's my own role? So a big part of the book is motivational, that each one of us has a role to play. I really wrote it hoping it might end up in the self-help section of some bookstores. Um, But that sense that not only is change possible, but you personally have a role to play, even if you've been told your race, your gender, where you live, your education, your job, you don't really have anything to offer. And the book is f- full of a lot of stories that exp- you know, show examples of people throughout history and, and contemporary who've been able to stand up and make a difference. Um, and it offers sort of that motivation, but then a guide on how to do it. The book does cover a lot of information, a lot of different issues. Um, it delves into race, white privilege, historical examples of the racial caste system in America. And it connects a lot of uh, dots between uh, historical federal and, and state level policies that excluded certain populations from accessing wealth, housing, education, and um, a lot of things like that. It also it also looks at the organizing during the 60s and before after World War One that led to a lot of victories in the areas of workers' rights, and then the very aggressive sort of attack that's been mounted starting in the 1970s by the right wing and a few wealthy people, business interests, and CEOs to dismantle all of that as a sort of backlash by creating uh, networks, networks of media organizations, of, uh, of um, different institutions and think tanks um, to just bring us back to where we were decades ago. Uh, and you also talk about the different trade laws that are supported by both parties, uh, which led to the emptying out of factories. Uh, and sending jobs overseas and attacks on labor unions. And in one part of the book, you talk about how in 1968, 1968, 25% of workers had the right to collective bargaining, whereas just a couple years ago, it was down to just 10%. So you paint a very grim reality of, to borrow a term from your title, the the sort of world on fire. And so the the book basically shows us how to counter that. It's, It's sort of an antidote to what's been going on for the last few decades through these five different conversations. So if we can get into the first one is purpose, uh, preparing emotionally for the fight of your life. So can you explain a little bit about what that means? Sure. When I was writing the book, one of the things I, I, I looked for was um, where are there moments in American history and world history and, um, and contemporary um, examples of people organizing to create change? And really interesting, go back and look at the Memphis sanitation strike, um, which is famous for many reasons, including it was during that period that Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis. And the workers who went on strike um, in Memphis in 1968 had been trying for almost a decade to get a union off the ground. Many of them had come back from other places um, in the country and it, to Memphis, including the um, the leaders of the what, what became the union, um, really determined to say, I, I, I need to have a voice and change is possible. Um, their, their, um, their national union said, you're not ready to go on strike. Two workers were killed in the back of a, um, a sanitation truck. And they said, we don't have a choice. We're going to go on strike. And they ended up 
marching under the banner of I am a man. And those signs became famous worldwide. And you know, part of that, I think, lesson from that is both these systems of oppression are never just about taking money from people or denying them opportunity. They're always fundamentally about denying people's humanity. And the struggle to change those systems always involves both the standing up for dignity and changing the rules. And um, that applies to almost any change we're trying to make, that, that the element of people who are most directly impacted by a problem um, standing up and saying we're here, whether it's dreamers saying we're, we're undocumented and we're unafraid to create the movement that led to DACA, LGBT rights that was led by people coming out and saying I'm here and I need to be recognized. So that personal um, willingness to sort of stand up and take risks is the starting place for most social change. So before we get into you know all the systems and policies and things we're trying to change, that the starting place of this is ultimately a personal decision that people make to step into the unknown and the the risk of being part of a change process people's clarity about what their commitment is and where it comes from is what sustains you when you get pushback and it's what lets you explain yourself to other people so it's why the, the really arguing that the starting place needs to be that personal commitment and reflection on why am I here? What's my purpose? And you you illustrate this this first purpose uh, conversation by uh, the metaphor of getting a knock on the door at midnight by a stranger, and you say when you answer, if you make the decision to answer the door, you're really helping yourself. It's not really about the person who's knocking on your door. Yeah, and as a community organizer, it's amazing to me how many times uh, I will work with somebody who gets involved because they want to improve their children's school or they want to make the transportation system in their city better. That might be the reason they come to a meeting, but ultimately it's often something deeper about, I want to leave something behind. I want to matter. I want my voice to count. Um, I want to show my children that this is a way to live a good life by standing up for what you believe in. So that, um, that kind of knock at your door challenge to, you know, and I think it's a challenge for all of us right now, given what we're facing, is can I do more? And how do I understand my own um, role in change? It's not just about an issue out there, but it starts with what the kind of change I want to see in the world. And of course, that that leads to the second conversation, which is uh, now I need to explain myself to another person. Right. The second conversation being story, building relationships that move people to action. Yeah, and it seems simple, but really, if, if, if you want to build a social movement, the starting place is one person telling their story to another person and hearing their story. And that's what builds a level of social trust and understanding that makes it possible for people to go into battle together. And we have a lot of experience in the network I work for called Faith in Action, formerly PICO National Network done a lot of research on what happens within organizations. And one of the simple lessons is that if you have a meeting where you start that meeting with 10, 15 minutes of people sharing their stories with each other, it's much more likely that someone will come back to the next meeting. So organizations that take the time to intentionally build community, intentionally create spaces for people to share their stories, you can't stop there. We've got to get into big battles and take on institutions that are shaping our communities and our country, but that, that the belief that if people are seen and heard by each other, then they're much more capable of acting together. 
and you talk about some of that research in the book about um, about through the different bonds and relationships that you create by sharing stories, um, that these relationships are one of the two main reasons why people keep coming back. The second one is giving them a, a role, a prominent role in an organization where they feel valued. And I think that the significance of that research shows that there's, you can really, there's millions of people potentially who could be recruited to your organizations who can become civic leaders and civically engaged. Yeah, and I think one of the mistakes we make, especially um, progressives or people trying to create social justice, that um, we think we have to find the right people or we have to tell people how they should see the world and what the problems are. And really in practice, people's judgment, their political consciousness, their engagement gets shaped by their experience. You need to come into organizations that matter to them, that give them a chance to engage in meaningful activity, and that shapes how they see the world. So huge believers in small group um, practice. You look at social movements throughout history. Often there are movements that tied people together who were in small societies, chapters, and were able to make decisions in the local community but also be tied together into national movement. Anti-slavery movement in the, in the, 19, in the 1830s, major shift in the American anti-slavery society from you know, a fairly small number of um, fairly elite um, advocacy-oriented organizations that um, had a, you know, were standing against slavery but didn't have a mass movement and weren't trying to build a mass movement. And the decision in the 1830s to create a mass movement that had a moral agenda that said immediate abolition of slavery, um, created societies all across the country, really said, American Anti-Slavery Society basically said, we, we want to create societies in every city, town, um, and, and, and village in America um, and, and force every institution, every elected official to make, take a clear stand for or against immediate abolition of slavery. And that shift in organizational strategy and, and structure really was what helped provoke the Civil War. And I think when we look back at kind of the history of social change in this country, it often starts local, starts in small groups that are tied together and have that moral um, agenda. And I think we could look at that today in terms of the kind of level of intensity of organizing that's necessary to go up against what we're facing. Another way you talk about the second conversation story is about um, is about the dominant narrative, the dominant stories or dominant narratives. And one of the one of the things you do when at a kind of a lo- more local level when you're talking amongst each other, the stories you share they don't always match up with the dominant narrative. In fact, they usually don't. And you give the example of I think uh, in the 1990s in Philadelphia where you had the mayor Ed Rendell and he was. Uh, undertaking um, an initiative to sort of what he called revitalizing the city by getting tons of investment and and, and you know through corporations and infrastructure and um, and things of that nature, which was causing a lot of gentrification, a lot of people being displaced, poverty was rising, the city was being decayed basically, and people outside the city weren't hearing those stories. They were just hearing, look what this mayor did. He came and he's he's the savior of the city. So what did you guys do as an organizer in Philadelphia to combat that narrative? Yeah, so part of our challenge was that um, in order to revitalize the neighborhoods in the city and and get the city to pay attention and invest resources in the places where people lived, 
we needed to change the story of the city and make that that the link between it wasn't just good to invest in those neighborhoods, but that the city was not going to move forward without its neighborhoods. And we were in an, essentially a fight over what the story of the city was. And I think when we get into the work of social change, we're, one, one plane we're always involved in is telling a story that's more inclusive and um, can then shape how resources flow and institutions function. And oftentimes we're up against very powerful forces that have the ability to shape the narrative that, and it's not, and I say in the book, it's it's not just that, um, you know, people get deceived, but if people are under stress and there's a lot of anxiety, people look for stories that help them make sense of the world. We're trying to create change. We've got to be able to wrap that up in a story that helps people see how their life fits into a larger movement and how the work we're doing for to advance the interests of one group are really um, to the benefit of the, of the whole society. And a big part of social change and organizing is making that case that our interests as a, um, as a community, um, as a social group that's oppressed, um, really are tied to the interests of the whole society. And it's what happens to us where on the other side, um, we have very small um, number of very wealthy interests, corporate interests, um, wealthy families who've convinced Americans that their interests, which are very narrow, actually are the interests of the whole society. So we've got to have that battle over narrative. It's why the work that at Haas is so important, because we, we when I started Organize, we would bring the mayor in and say, do X, Y, and Z. And, and that can be effective if you're trying to change public policy. But if you really want to shift the dynamics of a city and how it approaches development, you've got to you've got to tell a story that really shapes a narrative of the of, of how people look at what's right and wrong. Yeah, I like the story and specifically about Philadelphia where you mentioned there were some tens of thousands of uh, abandoned cars on the streets. They were burnt out, broken, and people wanted them removed. So they just started put, putting signs on the cars saying, you know, who's going to, there was a mayoral race at that time, wasn't there? Right, and, and part of what was happening was that the people in neighborhoods that had been disinvested from by both banks and the city were being blamed for the conditions in those neighborhoods. So the dominant narrative was, um, in fact, I was organizing in a public school um, with parents, and a, a, a teacher once said, you know, living in this neighborhood is like abusing your kids. So essentially blaming the people in communities for the conditions in their communities. And abandoned autos were a good example of how to push back at that because really if you have an abandoned auto on your block, it's not like you just take out your broom and like clean it up. It's really something that requires some public entity to do something about it. And a lot of the system was set up that people were told, well, just call your individually call your police district and, and then wait for them to remove it. And we said, well, we're going to organize around this um, collectively and try to understand how does the system work. And what we, le- we learned a lot about why there were 200,000 abandoned cars on the streets of Philadelphia. And it had a lot to do with a system that was uh, put in place to benefit um, the scrap dealers who basically, when the price of scrap metal went down, they would just leave the cars on the street. So there were a set of interests that were benefiting from having these cars in the streets, the ones that were valuable were taken off, the ones that weren't were left there. But it took organizing to sort of untangle that. And then 
once we figured out, okay, this is a solution. We need like a centralized system to remove abandoned autos. We don't need these cars on the streets. We know that's not going to solve poverty in Philadelphia, but it could become a symbol of what it means to create a city where everyone moves forward together. And then we worked to make it an issue in the, in the mayoral election and put these signs on the cars that said, the, the next mayor will decide how long this car sits on your streets, but you'll decide who the next mayor is. So, you know, some of those campaigns began very locally, but ultimately we're trying to paint a new picture of what it would be like to create a city that everyone's included in. The third conversation is team, finding a home base and a movement for a change. Uh, this is the con- this is the conversation that emphasizes small groups over large groups. Um, can you take us through this conversation. Yeah, and you know a lot of the um, a lot of them the sort of cultural categories around social change are somebody who's you know a hero who stands up and saves the world or saves their community. And you know there's no question that leadership matters. And you know part of the point of the book is to challenge people to step forward and take leadership. But it all happens through collective action. So part of my goal in writing Stand Up was to create better organizations. So organizations that um, have chapters or societies or teams where people actually meet face to face. It's a lost art, but it's so central to change. You look at the the President Obama's first um, campaign in 08, and and to some extent the the Sanders campaign last year, two years ago, um, that belief that ordinary people can engage in politics and that they need spaces in which to meet face-to-face and do work together. So uh, part of the book is sort of a roadmap to building organizations and movements that have very good small teams that are connected together and places where people can build trust and really develop their own skills. One of the points I think you make is is the benefit of, of a small team versus a large team or working in a small organization versus a large organization is that people in small organizations and teams they're valued more than they are in large organizations. Well, and you know, ultimately we need large organizations and movements to, to, to have build enough power to make change. Some of the best large organizations are built off of small groups. So I, I spent some time talking about um, a very large evangelical church, Saddleback, um, in Orange County that built on hundreds and hundreds of small groups. So people might be in a church that has 20,000 people on a Sunday, but their connection to that institution is through lots and lots of small teams that give them a chance to have a voice, be heard. And you know, when you're facilitating a group of people, Oftentimes, the best thing you can do if you have a room of 100 people is say, let's just break up into groups of eight or 10 and get to work. And then that gives people a chance to really have a say and have autonomy. And everything we've learned about organizing is that, and it's true about our own lives, that the ability to do something meaningful and have some autonomy where you can shape what you're doing um, really, really is what gets the most out of people. Um, you look at, the, the again, the Obama campaign in 08, built on volunteers doing work that most presidential campaigns up until then had farmed out to paid staff. And to know volunteers can do this, but they need to be organized into teams. People have to have roles. They need to get training and support. And they need to be connected together into a larger program. And the way you put it succinctly is to treat the people in your organizations as the ends, not the means to the ends. Yeah, and so much of our politics, so much of our society treats us as consumers to be kind of press our buttons, sell us 
sell our things, sell us things. Our politics operates that way, where you know so much money spent on digital and and lots of times of ads um, and polling, um, and 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 that often gets replicated in our organizations, where we think, well, you know, let's have people sign an online petition or come to a rally that someone else plans. So we're really trying to go back to a politics where people shape the agenda and have space to really be agents of change and not just kind of respond to somebody who's running an organization telling them what to do. The fourth conversation is base. Recruiting a following you need to lead. Yeah, so this is really organizing. Um, it's, it's, it's building a base of people who are acting in their own interests to create change. In, in the labor movement, that's when labor unions trust that the most powerful negotiating leverage they have is the ability of workers to go out on strike. Mm-hmm. And a great book by Jay McAlevey, No Shortcuts, which I draw on in, in, in Stand Up, um, really makes the case that there's lots of different ways in which the labor movement's tried to um, protect itself and advance worker interests, but fundamentally what 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 the only thing you can really fall back on is the ability of workers to go out and strike. And that doesn't just happen. It takes organizing. It takes people um, starting with sort of smaller fights that help build up their muscle. So building a base, really going out and talking to people. And it's what we said earlier, that there's so many people out there that are waiting to be engaged and involved in social change. We're not spending enough time talking to people who aren't already convinced. So base building is really talking to people who don't necessarily see themselves as activists or involved in social justice, social change. But so often when you talk to people and you talk to them about what they care about, they will, um, they're will they willing to, be, to, to respond and be part of something. So really trying to build organizations that face outward and go out and talk to people. The fifth and last, converse, last conversation that you outline in the book is power winning social change and this one's about directly confronting people in power you write in the book directly engaging people in power is important because it helps us realize our own power and makes our own organizations smarter and more courageous yeah it's you know it's sort of amazing when you think about the world of social change um, how not often people get to directly confront decision makers and in part of what I've learned as an organizer over the last 20 years is that the thing that's most transformative to how people see themselves in the world is getting to sit down face-to-face with my mayor, my city council person, the prosecutor, the bank president. Um, super transformative to how people understand their own voice and power. We have a lot of experience within PICO or Faith in Action that that experience of getting to, we call them research actions, they can be small group meetings, um, they can be sitting in someone's office until they meet with you, but going to meet with a decision maker really helps people see the world differently and helps you realize that, oh, you know, I have more influence and power than I thought. And um, it's really one of the missing pieces of, you know, rallies are great, protests are great, they can play a role, but that politics it has people working directly to make change in their community. And I, I tell a story in the book about an organizing campaign we ran in our own town um, around in the town I live in, Arlington, Virginia, around a program, a, a special ed program that my son's in, and um, how we, you know, built a base of parents who depended on that program, who had kids in special ed, but then really had to go into 
a whole set of very um, direct and confrontational meetings with the school board and the school um, district officials to be able to both understand what was happening and why these cuts were being proposed and then to ultimately reverse them. So really preaching um, the importance of people being able to directly engage in political um, confrontation with decision makers. Uh, so those are so in, in that last example that you talked about in the book about your son and the cuts to the special um, special needs programs programs for people with autism and learning disabilities uh, you show us how you use each one of those conversations you break it down one by one to be able to achieve the sort of victory that you achieved which by the end of the day you guys got those cuts reversed but what you say somewhere else in the book, and you have, a, you have actually the book is really just rich with these different types of real life examples, really practical examples, is that with examples like that, with cases like that, and with cases in Philadelphia where you talk about Rosie, the, the lady who worked the crosswalk uh, in a very rough, at, you know, in front of a school at in a very rough area of the city where there was a lot of gun violence, a lot of drug dealing, and you guys wanted to get a police patrol there in the morning and after school just so at least to create some sort of sense of security for the people in that neighborhood for the students and there was some resistance to the school but after some organizing you won that you won that fight and then there were some other battles at that school later on the parents uh, they realized well if we can win this we can win other battles too they got a new roof for example i think you write about in the book um, there's an all-day kindergarten there's a number of other things that that happened uh, but what you 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 also write that despite those victories that did nothing to get at the root causes of the programs none of these changes altered the underlying inequality that still makes Philadelphia one of the poorest big cities in the United States so my question is with all of these how do we apply this model at a larger level here we're talking about kind of smaller local level, level initiatives um, where you won clear victories, but how do you actually change now the structure of power, the underlying causes, the root yeah. causes of a lot of these problems? And I think that's that's one of the big challenges, and it's it's something that I've spent a long, lot, lot of time working on, a lot of colleagues working on, is how do we connect that local experience that really is a door for lots of people into social change, really believe that, you know, just people need to take take steps into change and um, we've got to create opportunities for people to do that so that's that's one piece of it then the organizations that we're inviting people into need to be better organizations more humane less manipulative more racially conscious more um, willing to really trust people to take on leadership and I think the third ingredient is we have to have structures that connect these things together so that we can go from local to state to federal. Um, ultimately, we've got international capacity we've got to build in terms of building bridges across countries. So part of the work of community organizing, and you know, I, I, um, the network I work for over the last seven, eight, nine years has really worked on how do you tie together lots of local work and bring it to scale at the state level and ultimately the federal level. I think right now our big challenge is to build the power to govern our states. A lot of work going on to, to, to take local organizing and bring it to the level where we're articulating big, bold vision for what should happen in a state around criminal justice reform, protecting immigrants, raising wages, um, 
family benefits, um, preschool, investment education. Um, California's been a great example of this. We're seeing other states that are really trying to take precedent from the local level and make it state policy. And then ultimately, we're, we're, you know, and we, you know, we're really building a national movement to shift how the country works. So that's a tricky piece of work to connect local, state, federal. But um, the history of this country is that you can't really start at the national level. You've got to build it up from the ground up. So that's the philosophy. And that was our conversation with Gordon Whitman, the deputy director of Faith in Action and author of Stand Up, How to Get Involved, Speak Out, and Win in a World on Fire. You can learn more about the book, available in both English and Spanish, at standupbook.org. You can also find a video recording of a book talk Gordon gave during a visit to UC Berkeley in February on our website at hawesinstitute.berkeley.edu forward slash videos. To listen to more episodes of Who Belongs, visit us online at hawesinstitute.berkeley.edu forward slash who belongs, or you can find us on social media using the handle at Hawes Institute. Thank you for listening. Thank you.